great news, Buggy fans. Shoot the shit is back. That's right, season two, with all new interviews from folks across the wide world of this sport of buggy that we all love. So strap in your safety harnesses, look for those shoot flags as we turn into another great round of buggy stories as we shoot the shit. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for another episode of Shoot the Shit. Apologize for a little bit of a hiatus there, but we are here. We are back. Uh, This one is actually going to close out the season, but it's a really, really interesting conversation with some alumni from Campus EMS. We're going to talk about their role in roles, all the really crucial behind-the-scenes things they do to make sure that buggy happens and is safe. We cover a lot of territory in this conversation, uh, veer a little bit even into just the philosophy of EMS and what campus EMS does at CMU, uh, which to me is someone who just loves these different student organizations and passions, I think was fascinating. And I hope that you will agree with that. Given that it is EMS, we do have a few sensitive subjects that get covered in here. If you look in the episode description, uh, you can see some trigger warnings on that. And if you want to skip those sections, uh, clear info for how you can do that. Uh, But all in all, a really fascinating, fun intense and exciting discussion uh so go ahead give it a listen and let's shoot the shit uh for one last time this season with campus ems hi my name is gabe diamond i was part of uh cmu ems from 2011 to 2014 and now i'm a flight paramedic i'm laura i graduated in 2015 from the college of science and i was in ems also from 2011 to 2015 and now i work at facebook hi guys i'm blaze i uh was in Carnegie Mellon EMS from 2010 to 2016. Uh, And now I am a paramedic, but a medical student at the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin, Ireland. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you very much uh, for joining in here. You know, I think it's a group that we know and see a fair bit, hopefully one we don't have to see in action uh, too much on race day, but I guess, you know, initially just kind of interested in uh, what that relationship is like between sweepstakes and an EMS and sort of what are, you know, your kind of given roles throughout a school year and then, you know, specifically on race day. For the most part, I feel like we did our own thing. People are like, okay, there's a crash. EMS comes over, does their thing, then they go away. People I uh, usually end up hanging out most with were, uh, either the people I like was personally friends with, uh, which were usually in CIA because I was in CIA for one year before I uh, left and went to EMS. And uh, usually just hang out with radio club. I, um, I had the pleasure or punishment of being on the executive board for quite some time in a lot of different roles. And I've had the role of communicating with sweepstakes, um, I think for one year. And Gabe is kind of right. Um, we do sit down at a lot of the sweepstakes meetings. We, at the time, I think I was the captain, but we ended up appointing a buggy liaison to do that at, at one point or another. But really, like the the importance of EMS is the the potential importance of EMS, and not actually like the constant importance of EMS. So we have to be there. But as long as nothing terrible happens, you know, we kind of stay a little bit removed from the process. Um, you know, we, I had a, at one point a little bit of conversation with one of the safety chairs and sort of just going over kind of like the actual like physical components of buggy and, and 
you know, stuff that we need to be worried about as people that might respond to severe crashes. But, you know, God willing, a lot of the time we just kind of were on the loop and not really in it. Yeah, we were saying um, in two and a half years, I was in EMS and I probably did, once I became a supervisor, I probably did like 80, 85% of the buggy standbys. And I usually show up too when I was technically on duty and I had to get someone else to drag along with me. And I never called an ambulance for a single person. Um, the one time I remember it happening, it was the day on race day when I was uh, doing something else. Yeah, Gabe, you're absolutely right. Um, the incidents are very much few and far between. I remember a couple in 2014 that kind of flagged as the most important or, or the most severe incidents. And I think that uh, a driver was ejected partially from a buggy at one point. Um, and there was another head-on crash as well. They both made it to, um, I was in some position where I was reviewing the charts, um, got to see the two charts of, uh, of the two more serious buggy crashes, and they were two that did end up getting de-identified and put into the buggy crash testing report at some point or another as well. So even on race days, when I think there was probably a propensity for a little bit more action, just because of how many people were around, how many attention, how much attention there was on it. I think we even had like an ambulance standby. Yeah. Dave, you're going to have to correct me. From, yeah. yeah, the you're city, right. the city yeah. showed up. <laughs> it was definitely a, a hope for the best, prepared for the worst kind of situation. But um, I don't know, Will, uh, how interested people are in, in the actual logistics of the thing itself. But on race days, um, we would actually staff like a significant number of responders to race day. And a big reason for that was actually not so much that the sport itself is inherently dangerous, but that it anytime there's a huge collection of people on campus, um, EMS would normally send some people. And, you know, you can kind of get into the nitty gritty of how that was determined. But, you know, our, our current guideline is basically that we'd, you know, put a certain number of people in the shoot because that's where buggy crashes happen. But we'd also put a bunch of people up at the finish line and sort of scattered around the course because, you know, a bunch of the incidents that we would respond to on race day would have absolutely nothing with the people participating in buggy and a lot to do with, you know, a bunch of people running around campus and some of them are drunk and some of them are children and hopefully none of them fit into both of those groups. <laughs> but like, um, you know, there's just massive chaos because it's also right in the middle of Carnival, which is like our big business weekend. So we'd have, you know, I would say, I, I can't do the numbers off the top of my head, but I, I can definitely tell you almost beyond a shadow of a doubt that the majority of the incidents that the crew at on the buggy curse during race day responded to were not people that were actively participating in buggy. Uh, They were people that were there to spectate buggy um, or there to just kind of be around and be annoying. On that though, I think I never once, I never once treated a driver. I did treat several uh, pushers. Is that what they're called? Yeah, yeah they I did, are called I did pushers. <laughs> Thank so you. I know. I know. You can tell. <laughs> I I know how to I know how to treat people. I I don't know the first thing about buggy very much on the peripheral. I think Gabe and Blaze here know a lot more about that. But I did treat a bunch of a bunch of pushers for for like abrasions, you know, road burn. I think that mm-hmm. was a lot more common from what I saw. Yeah, I definitely like treated drivers, but like the most I ever did was like wrap someone's hand and send them to urgent care. <laughs> so there were a few very high profile incidents during our time. Um, and I remember Rachel doing a project on 
like the buggy safety aspect of it. And I had de-identified a bunch of patient care reports and given them to her. And, you know, as you, as you go through those patient care reports, you see at EMS, we kind of had this unspoken understanding that basically unless a buggy torpedoes a curb and hits it perpendicular in the worst possible way, um, there's kind of this either the injuries are very mild and you get sprains and strains, bumps and bruises, or you fully torpedo the curb and hurt yourself, which is incredibly, incredibly rare. And then there's this kind of big chasm in the middle where there's not really any intermediate injuries. There's either very minor injuries or uh, incredibly rare, severe injury. And there's nothing in the middle because of that kind of the way the safety setup is, unless you absolutely do, you know, the worst possible thing, it's set up to make it very, very safe. Yeah, I remember working on that project with her, which uh, if anyone listening doesn't know, she uh, got like an old, I think it was an old buggy and put a dummy in it and then um, like hooked it up to a pulley system to Ben Matsky's car and, you know, ran it at like 30 miles an hour into like the curb a couple times and the hay bales at a couple times. And what I pretty much told her at the beginning, which is what she found was unless you go straight head on into the concrete, you're really not getting significantly injured like uh, you might get some have some back pain or like a like at worst like a wrist sprain but you're not going to have like a spinal fracture or anything unless you really do like full speed just right into the concrete (laughs) unless someone like really careens off into like the bridge and gets run over by a car or something which did almost happen once because Um, uh what happened was is some nurse driving somewhere and I remember we watched her and the, there's the inner barricade on that bridge, which was uh, controlled by, I think, some like uh, drunk PICA member at the time. And then the outer one was an off-duty uh, city cop. And I remember this woman like blew right through the outer barricade and this cop jumped in his car and started like chasing her and they actually made it past the inner barricade and he like pulled her over like essentially in the chute. <laughs> and started yelling at her and we were all like what the fuck is going on wow i'm trying to was that on a race day it was on a rolls day um something might have happened on race day too but race day would have been harder to mistake it you know right because like you have on on i think what that's the shenley park bridge the one that crosses right across um over onto pitts campus from phipps Mm -hmm. conservatory and you'd have a city ambulance probably the carnegie mellon ems squad a couple of police cars like that whole bridge is basically just packed to the gills with with emergency vehicles and then behind that like people parking to come and see the show on rolls day you know, at the very most, you'd have maybe our truck and often times not even that. So people could very easily kind of slip past the oh, yeah. system. And that that actually, that a few times I remember um, chasing people, like, like, which is not really an EMS job, right? We're not <laughs> cops, but I remember chasing people off the course a couple times. And I think, I want to say one of our supervisors actually pulled someone over with uh, a truck. Tommy pulled someone over in his squad. <laughs> Which is, eh, but also, you know, it's a safety thing. You can't have people driving on the course, but I think he, he used our squad to pull someone over and just told him, hey, you can't be here. See, the funny thing about, about course control that I remember, this is what I mostly do at Buggy. Like, half the time I did, you know, standby for roles, there wouldn't be any incident. And the other half the time it was like, okay, there are like a couple of spins and like a crash and a couple times a semester, I'd like put someone in a cop car and they could drive to urgent care and like get their wrist x-ray. But most of what I did was just hang around. And 
I remember like people were always talking about how much like uh, the neighbors surrounding it kind of hated us. And I kind of took this hard and what would happen is like, you know, it'd be rolls and people would be going through the chute and there'd be people trying to cross the bridge and the people in the chute would always be like, don't cross the street. And I'd be like, please. And I just did this all day, all morning. I would just start yelling, please, after people would start yelling at like random bystanders. That's I didn't know that. That's <laughs> Just like, uh, like slightly softening the blow. <laughs> uh, Gabe on politeness patrol. You know, uh, at the times when I wasn't just sitting in my car with the heater on. We have actually, as part of the getting ready for this, I kind of have gone back and looked over. EMS has a lot of, because it's one of those things where like everything is great until it's really not. And then if you're not prepared for it being really not, you look like an idiot and are screwed and people could possibly get hurt. Um, we have we have all these um, prior research into old buggy incidents. There are uh, buggy protocol committees that have met and like written uh, the buggy the buggy guideline that CMEMS actually maintains. I don't know if that's something that the listeners would be interested in, but it is. Yeah, no. So there's know, actually like a specific detailed kind of like buggy response plan for for EMS. Yeah. We CMUMS kind of runs on this this system of policies and guidelines, right? So policies are fully enforceable laws and guidelines are like, this is how you should do something in the perfect situation. Um, and I, I guess some of the, the interesting facts that are that might be relevant to the viewers that they don't really know is that, um, and it, it seems kind of obvious on the surface, but, but you actually dig down into this stuff. Things like as simple as like, when we're participating in bugging, we're treating drivers that are injured the protocol that we refer to isn't like a sports injury. It's a vehicle accident, right? We'll mm-hmm. go to treating a person like they've been in it because they have. Um, and that's kind of a interesting bit of sort of a thing that on the surface, it seems kind of obvious, but we actually like a committee sat down, looked at these incidents and decided that that was how they needed to be addressed. It's other stuff like how to assess and ensure that drivers don't have severe injuries. I think one of the one of the things that really came to light with both the research that the committee did in 2010, but also the, with the buggy research project that Rachel did was that that bracket of severe injuries at the end that are incredibly rare, but sometimes do happen when everything goes wrong, almost always is a cervical spine injury. It's almost always a neck injury that, mm. that comes from those moments. Um, and just kind of having those protocols in place to be prepared for that to happen and you know, vehicle extrication is something that we cover when we, in EMT class and we cover when we're talking about like our, our training, but that's extracting people from cars right. and a buggy is a completely different vehicle. Yeah. Um, I, I was always told with the, with extricating people from buggies, like I, I shouldn't even give it a shot. Like every buggy is kind of different. You, you have the team do it. Find, and yeah. Just, find yeah. the team. And you just try and uh, make it clear to them exactly how urgently you want it done. Um, apparently in like 2006 or 2008 or something. I have no idea when. Apparently the city did once come cut a buggy open with an air chisel. I cannot imagine it being necessary. I want to say it was in 2006. And this is a sort of oral storytelling in EMS, but I'm 90% sure it was in 2006 and it was a buggy that actually ended up torpedoing underneath a parked car on the Shenley Park Bridge. And looking back on it from our our high horse now in 2021, maybe 
uh, they were being a little bit more diligent with their C-spine protocols, but I'm pretty sure the buggy actually did end up wedged underneath a vehicle, and that was part of the extra, part of the reason why they needed to extricate that person. Uh, yeah, I mean, back then, we kind of, back then in EMS, we kind of bought into the, oh God, I don't want to call it the myth of the cervical spine injury. Okay, let me explain, I should just explain this. So here's what happened. Back in like the 60s, right when EMS was being invented, not um, Carnegie Mellon EMS, all not, EMS, not EMS in America, EMS in America, which was America, invented in Pittsburgh, wasn't it? It was either invented in Pittsburgh or Los, or Los Angeles, Angeles, depending on who you ask. I think it technically really was here first, but it was um, Los Angeles in the show Emergency that kind of brought it to um, like all 50 states. Um, but anyway, so at the beginning, some orthopedic surgeon, because EMS was started by orthopedic surgeons uh, in America and is still under the National Highway and Transportation Safety Administration instead of the Department of Health and Human Services, which annoys us to no end. So someone did a study and they found like some amount of people that were brought to the hospital with cervical spine injuries, like had another secondary worst thing happen to them after they were already at the hospital. I think it was like 5% or something. I haven't looked at the actual study in a while. And because this was back in the days before actual real evidence-based medicine, one of the people writing like the national standard for the NHTSA was this orthopedic surgeon. And he basically decided like, you know what? I bet this is from people uh, getting moved. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna put cervical collars and we're gonna put everyone on backboards with a possible C-spine injury. And everyone just did this for 50 years, like straight up. And finally, in like 2010 ish, incredibly recently across the country, like really recently, people actually started studying this. And what we found is one, backboards are useless and they cause more harm than good. So we stopped using backboards. <laughs> That's not funny, but no, it is. No, it's hilarious. Honestly, that, I mean, I, I, I want to make this an evidence-based medicine podcast, but this is an example. The dose of epinephrine that we use during cardiac arrest comes from a study in like 1906, where this is going to upset Laura, but I have to say it. a study in 1906, where some guys took dogs and like gave them chloroform until they went into cardiac arrest and did CPR on them and gave them a milligram of epinephrine. And that's the epinephrine dose that we're still using today. So anyway, <laughs> around 2010 to 2014, which is when we were uh, in EMS, is about the time we started realizing maybe all this backboarding, cervical collaring stuff is not nearly as big of a deal as we thought it was. So back in 2006, to bring this back to my beginning point, that would have been more of the time where it was like, no, if you don't keep her completely in line while you're extricating her, you might cause an injury. Whereas today, they'd be more inclined to put a cervical collar on, which we still use, although that's going away very slowly in some other parts of the country. Today, it would be more like, let's put a cervical collar on and just someone like hold her head and we'll pull her straight out. I would like to say I took my EMT class in 2012 and there was still a very heavy emphasis throughout the course and throughout the certification exams and the national the national registry exams with a huge emphasis on on backboarding. So, yeah. yeah. Gabe and I took our EMT class together. I was 16. We were very small children um, in 2010. And I weighed 134 pounds. Oh, those were the days, my friend. Um, 
yeah, it was incredibly highly emphasized back then. And that's kind of one of the things that you can, you can see as our buggy guidelines have changed over the years. A lot of that has been in line with this because buggy, like I said, the severe injuries are almost always spinal injuries. Yeah. I remember back when I started doing buggy in like probably like 2011, I was told by one of our then crew chiefs that like our medical director had given us like a standing order for if you couldn't get a really good assessment on the buggy driver, you could throw a cervical collar on her and then like take her out and then kind of take it off again and do a better assessment, which that had to be its own special thing back then. Today, I would argue looking at the state protocol that that's just kind of what you're supposed that that would just be standard of care. It's, it's definitely, you know, watching the buggy guidelines kind of change as the national guidelines and the Pennsylvania state guidelines have changed has been very interesting. And it's not maybe something that people really think about is like, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think a lot of folks that kind of are on the outside looking into this kind of medical situation think that like what we do is always based in what's going to be best for the patient. And, yeah. you know, we try very hard for that to be the case, but in reality, like, you know, a lot of this stuff has been what's what's referred to as common sense medicine for the last 50 years, where it's just like, oh, we thought this was the right thing to do. And as research has come out, those guidelines change. So maybe, you know, people that have been watching Buggy for 30 years have seen how EMS responds to these crashes changing. Um, and like, it seems like, you know, we're doing less to stabilize the patient as we're pulling them out. That's not because we've gotten lazy, guys. That's just because the evidence points to different methods being more effective and better for the patient uh, it, it is funny you know look they're talking to like buggy people obviously they want safety but i think too even in like the parallel side of like what the teams would do and try and get away with in terms of like stuffing people in or even talking with like ann when they like made helmets required or something like that and like people being like why the hell would you do it and it's kind of just everybody like in retrospect all the safety stuff makes sense but it's kind of crazy how just like standards and values Mm -hmm. evolve over time and definitely a good thing that it sounds like none of you really i guess gabe you kind of saw a major incident sounds like none of y'all saw anything too bad which is a good thing there are there have been a few serious buggy related incidents over the last 10 years um at least i can speak to a few in 2014 but it is exceedingly rare and i would say much less rare than people getting seriously injured in the campus gyms or playing intramural sports like it's very it's very very rare or otherwise going to the hospital during carnival related yeah (laughs) right well like you said it it sounds like y'all are busiest um wrangling drunk idiots in the morning or or whatever yeah and in the evening yeah i guess it probably doesn't stop for about 96 hours straight from wednesday night to sunday afternoon people wielding power tools in the middle of the night oh yeah oh yeah people building booth that's Mm. you you guys want to talk about serious injuries buggy's (laughs) Buggy's the least of your carnival related problems (laughs) yeah there's a uh there's a there's another cmu ems myth um which I have no idea if it happened or not, was that uh, there was a booth collapse one year. And when they called this into the city, this got called in as a structural collapse at 100 whatever Morewood Avenue. So the city thought like 
Morwood Gardens collapsed. Oh my God. So they sent like everyone. It was like both rescue trucks, fire, 10 ambulances. I mean, but like, I mean, technically. So during uh, Booth, that if a booth collapses, we have to make it very clear to the dispatcher to call this in as a collapse of the temporary structure on the corner of Forbes and Morwood. Yeah. Not wow. anymore. Well, wherever. Yeah, I'm right. Now. now it's. It was Forbes and Morwood back when I was there. It was Forbes and Morwood, yeah. and it was great. The good old days of Booth. Yeah, it's one of those things that kind of hits me doing this, just like how much of people's carnivals they sacrifice when they're in school, like who are of the buggy persuasion or like in these kind of tangentially related things where like, I mean, obviously you guys do shifts, but I, I would guess it's probably pretty much all encompassing. Like when you're on EMS, that is what you are yeah. doing for. All carnival. I ever did during carnival was EMS. And it was Basically. actually the worst because, um, the thing you wanted to do was to be like the responders for like all of campus during carnival because that's when the interesting stuff happened but like we literally would have a meeting where people would like we'd assign those in a fairish process but people would like fight for those shifts like the saturday carnival shift that was like what you joined ems to do but a lot of what i actually spent during carnival was just staffing the booth trailer yeah which was you just sit in there for hours and, hand out and people would come in and be like i have a splinter and you'd be like in pennsylvania removing a splinter is considered a surgical procedure and i'm not allowed to do it so here's a splinter kit and you can do it yourself <laughs> okay also though you don't really need somebody else to remove a splinter for you you should oh, no, you totally don't <laughs> well, that's, i'm not saying i needed to be there like under a microscope removing people's splinters you know and flashing my emt card and yelling hero but uh that's, that's like thing. mostly what it was and like like in like 12 hours in that like little trailer on like the old military cot that was in the storage shed um you'd see like <laughs> one to two actual legit injuries carnival i guess uh will to 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 talk to your point about that is that yes if you're in ems you don't have a carnival the way you conventionally think of a carnival so we go into kind of this overdrive staffing from wednesday night to sunday night where we basically put up two full response crews for campus. And then additionally, during daylight hours, when people are building booths uh, with power tools, because after quiet hours, you know, you kind of have to back off on the power tools. Um, you'd ha have to have a few people staffing the carnival base, which is that little trailer that has the big star of life on it that everybody always shows up to and Gabe's right. You know, we used to keep a, a whiteboard or a piece of paper on the wall where we just like tally mark how many band-aids we'd given out because it's funny but then you'd also have to and sometimes all four of these things would be happening at once you also have event standbys so uh there's at least normally four major events that take place during carnival um one of them is the spring ab concerts concert um, the two buggy related events so prelims and finals and then a third normally like high traffic a lot of times it was like a, a famous stand-up comedian or some other mm -hmm. thing that was happening that they would also have to staff for so you're thinking across uh these this four-day period you're maybe as as the person in charge of this managing anywhere between two and five active duty crews at the same time and so yeah when you're in ems you don't really have much of a carnival experience because each of those crews is four to five people and ems is at its strongest maybe 40 people mm. um so we just kind of work 
round the clock for those four days and then go to bed and sleep and, for and 24 hours and then party the next weekend. Half of those 40 people are considered are in, in training, training or probationary yeah. or is precepting back in those days. So they weren't even supposed to be on scene by themselves. And then you only had, depending on the year, between two and six supervisors. Mm-hmm. And a supervisor, not to get into it too much, but essentially a supervisor was supposed to show up for every call. The process to get to that point, especially at Carnegie Mellon EMS, it takes a little, it takes a while. And a lot of that is because, you know, people tend to not take Carnegie Mellon EMS super seriously in the grand scheme of things, like when you're talking to the city or Carnegie Mellon police. And so making sure that there was at least one person on duty at any given time that was very well trained and really competent and able to make these decisions was really, really important. Uh, But that also, you know, it takes a while to train somebody to do that and they have to see a lot of stuff and there's only so much stuff at CMU to see. So, you know, when we, in, in, in a really good year, we would have six active duty supervisors and a supervisor had to be present at each of those events. So a lot of the time, four out of the six of us were all working at the same time. <laughs> and that's just how, that's just how carnival went. Um, and that's, I, I guess over the past couple of years, that's not been as much of a problem from talking to the kids because carnival hasn't really happened, but <laughs> back in the day <laughs> before yeah. all this. It got better. It got better at the tail end of things when we nixed the whole supervisor has to be on every yeah. scene and we shifted it to supervisor or crew chief. Crew chief. We started letting yeah. slightly lower rank members handle like lesser incidents and that Definitely freed us up a little bit. And then the uh, um, the supervisor only had to show up for anything that was either major or involved university athletics, or needed the car, or which needed the, the car. truck, yeah. Which was which was an equipment hassle. You know, it was it was mostly based on like what equipment was needed. Yeah. Um, I remember I remember a few times in buggy having to to argue with the guy that blockades the streets because they have to shut down the streets. So when you drive up in the in the car, you have to like tell the guy to let you through. And he's like, no, buggy's in session. You know, it's dangerous. And you're like, no, I'm here for bugging. Actually, the most severe thing I remember treating at buggy, it wasn't even at buggy technically, but it was a, um, I was not the buggy standby that day, although I was going to show up to it. I was just the supervisor for campus. And this was right after we got the, uh, the vehicle. And it was like in the morning, someone in Tepper had like an, or GCSI or IS or whatever the, they called that business school building, like had an asthma attack. So I like flipped on the lights and I was driving up to the barricader and he was just standing there, like looking like hungover and miserable. I just like whooped the siren at him. <laughs> I've never seen one of them move that fast in my life. It was <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting though, I guess from both of those, it's kind of like you're a known quantity and you're present, but it's like very much not a lot of interaction with the buggy world. Yeah, it's like necessarily. It was kind of like how how much you wanted, which yeah, <laughs> varied person to person. And like there were people at Buggy that I was friends with and I hung out with, and I did Buggy for a year, so I was like interested in it. So as long as it wasn't like too cold, I would stand outside and talk to people. And sometimes I would pull out my amateur radio license and just hop on the net with a. Uh, radio club and I wouldn't actually say anything besides identify myself every nine minutes but what we actually did when anything like happened whenever there was like anything from like a spin out to a crash what we wanted to do was go up and have them take the uh, windshield off and then um, we wanted to get down on the ground and make eye contact with the driver and basically the first thing you just ask is like are you okay 
if they said yes, you'd be like, okay, like, yeah, they, you ask them, are you okay? They're like, yeah, I'm fine. They're fine. Cool. Take her out of the buggy. I mean, technically the guideline was four questions. Um, and, you know, I know we're pretty removed from this, but at the time that we were in EMS and it's still going on today, when you approach a buggy after a crash, we kind of narrowed our patient assessment down to four questions um, that we cleared with our medical commander just to make the process of like not having to go through the process of doing a full like documented refusal of medical treatment on somebody that just bounced a buggy off a hay bale. Um, so you go through four questions with every driver and it's, are you okay? Do you hurt anywhere? Do you remember the events of the crash, which is really important? And then last but certainly not least, do you want any treatment? Do you feel like you need treatment? And those are kind of the four questions that we go through with every driver that EMS contacts just to kind of make sure that, you know, a lot of people will be in the crash and be raring to go and be like, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Um, but then, you know, once you start to pry a little bit harder, maybe they don't remember exactly what happened or maybe they, they are in pain somewhere that they weren't initially thinking about. So it kind of gives you like a 15 to 20 second sort of calm down period where we're talking to you and you just kind of get to focus on that and actually think about the answers to those questions. Is this a podcast where I'm all specific organizations out by name? You're welcome to, you may upset them. I know exactly what you're going to say here. There is a specific organization and please remember this was in 2012 to 2014. Um, So this was years ago. So I can't speak to what anyone's doing today. But there was one that really, really, really liked to hold freaking curtains up in front of their buggy because no one could see what was inside of the buggy. And I had so many arguments with them of like, I need to look your driver in the face and talk to her. And it never got that big, but it was always like a thing where they really didn't want me looking in their buggy. For, for the buggy people out there, uh, we here at EMS do not give a shit about your wheels. We do not give a shit about your steering mechanisms. Or do we know what it is? We don't we know could, what we're looking for with that. We could care less about your brakes or your shells or your push bars. We just need to talk to your driver to make sure they're okay. And when I come over in a fancy uniform with a nice big Pennsylvania state certification patch right. and say, I would like to talk to your driver to make sure that they are okay. I am not trying to get sneak peeks inside your buggy. I am not trying to steal your blueprints or your schematics so I can go build my own buggy because I don't care about your buggy. I care about your driver. And that is a very important thing for those of you that are currently participating in buggy at Carnegie Mellon to remember, <laughs> we do not give a shit about your buggy. We think they're cool. Good job. You built a thing. It goes fast down a hill. Awesome. Let us talk to your driver. <laughs> it was a pretty common occurrence that whenever you would actually have to do that, like it would get a little... It was only with one specific it organization. It was common within and a, they one just, organization. Like, they were always really reluctant. Like, you'd think after, like, the 50th time this happened, they just, like, move the curtain aside so I could, like, you know, go lay on the ground and, like, talk to their driver. But every time, it was, like, move aside. And that was kind of <laughs> the reason to get sort of on the ground and make eye contact with the driver and, and sort of get that face-to-face was very much to not only to, so that we could get an adequate assessment, but also so that the drivers could understand and internalize that like, this was something that, you know, if they needed to stop at that point, you know, they had an out, they could be like, hey, I don't feel good. I hurt myself. And we would get them out 
some of the time, you know, you're, you're doing this high performance thing. You feel like your team's on your back and you're kind of like, you're kind of a linchpin here. And if you stopped rolling for the day, that was the day over, you know? So a lot of, a lot of people, and this is not just with buggy, this is with all sports um, folks would kind of try to, to shrug it off and be like, no, I'm fine. I want to get back in the buggy. I want to keep rolling. I want to keep rolling. And we needed, you know, we needed to make sure that um, both that we could get a face-to-face with them so that we could see if they were maybe trying to downplay something that was more serious, but also to give them sort of an out to be like, you know, if they, if they seem to react poorly, we could kind of take the burden of being like, okay, guys, we are going to make the decision that she needs to come out and we need mm-hmm. to talk to her, right? We're going to make that decision. That's not on her. The pressure is not on her. It's on us. And we kind of exist in this, like sort of lateral aspect to the rest of buggy where like they can't really be disappointed if we make that call you know and which by the way we didn't always take them out if it was like something super minor like sometimes you wouldn't even have them take the windshield out after after a certain amount of doing buggy for a little while you you can almost always know watching the occurrence of the crash whether or not you need to do anything because it's you know there's like two types of buggy crashes <laughs> like and uh you know our our guideline basically said that anytime a buggy spins contacts hay bales uh has some sort of mechanical failures so loses a wheel or anything like that we had to at least make contact with them and just ensure that they they didn't want anything yeah. um but uh, you know we kind of divided those incidents up into negative mechanism incidents where uh the buggy didn't do anything that would significant enough to result in any trauma and positive mechanism incidents where there was actually like clearly a, a an incident that would result in trauma to the driver um and you could kind of divide them up into those things and sort of know what you were getting yourself into before yeah. you approach the buggy and this also determined whether or not you had to write a trip sheet about it so like at the end of yeah. buggy you'd have to go do documentation um and your documentation would basically go like this like showed up to buggy 549 CIA buggy spun in the chute. The driver stated that she was fine. And it would just be like two or three of those. And every once in a while, you'd be like, buggy crashed headfirst into the hay bales. The driver stated that she had wrist pain, C chart number, whatever. And then you would actually have to go write a full report about that specific incident. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, it sounds like it's like limited enough, but like you mentioned, kind of a high valence or whatever but it sounds like generally no bad not like i'm trying to dig for bad stories but it's kind of a relief like i don't remember any crazy crashes in my time like i mean i remember a couple but like i don't recall you know I, i recall the driver always being all right it's important that we remember that those incidents are rare but it's also important to remember that they do sometimes happen that it is sort of there is an inherent risk involved with rocketing yourself down a hill at 40 miles an hour in a tiny carbon fiber pod there is some inherent risk that a driver is undertaking and also i mean even the pushers um, and the mechanics like you know we did see lots of pushers with sprained ankles or you know and mechanics burn themselves cut themselves hurt themselves all the time and we were there for a while and most of that time also I was in a some form of position to be reviewing the charts um, of the crews that were responding to buggy either on the quality assurance board, which was a thing that EMS had where basically anytime anybody writes a patient care report in EMS, um, that patient care report has to be reviewed by another senior member of EMS to make sure that it, it doesn't have anything missing, right? That all the data is there, that, that everything was done correctly. And then it goes on to be even further reviewed by our medical command physicians at UPMC and then up the chain to the state of Pennsylvania. So for a very, very long time, I was reviewing charts and Gabe was reviewing charts for a long time uh, in his time in EMS too. 
so instead of being at all the incidents, um, we're still at a significant number of the incidents, but we also then read the charts from all the other incidents and so get a pretty holistic picture of like what's going on. And, you know, we've said over and over again in the, in the pod that, you know, these incidents are exceedingly rare and they really, really are. And, but there have been some, right? There have been some very, very serious buggy incidents. I think well, the one that you recall, one that took place, I want to say in 2014, but um, there have been incidents where, where drivers have been ejected from buggies, where they've uh, gone into head-on collisions with the curb. There was an incident that resulted in a cervical spinal fracture. There were incidents that have resulted in collarbone fractures. Um, they do exist. Some of those injuries are injuries that you know take time to recover from. I mean, the fact that I can confidently say that in my tenure at CMU EMS, there were maybe two or three serious injuries to drivers at buggy that's over a period of about six years right which is drastically safer than most other sports at carnegie mellon it's drastically safer than being an architecture major <laughs> oh i had a nickel oh my god okay so the <laughs> oh my two, god so of the probably 450 calls a year that cmu ems had at least 50 of them were sprained ankles and at least 75 of them were, I cut myself doing architecture. Because they would stay up, they stayed up for like right. 20, they 20 hours, cutting stuff with exacto knives, and they yeah. cut into their hands all the time. All the Let time. those kids sleep, And man. you'd go there, and you'd be like wrapping up this person's bleeding hand in the middle of the Archie studio, and every other Archie would still just be like zombified, focusing on their work. <laughs> That was like the one situation which could you could guarantee no bystanders cared at all. Like not buggy, even a little bit. Buggy, there's an accident, everybody swarms. Oh like, yeah. Architecture, like <laughs> in the middle of the night, you're not getting eye contact from anybody. I don't think I ever heard a single Archie ask another Archie if they were okay or if they needed anything. <laughs> they were all just like, must make model, five-year major. That's one of those things that like, now that you say it is 0% surprising, but is really nice to find out in oh, its own way. Yeah. Actually, I feel like that's a, that's a nice little plug for anybody watching Buggy. If you see a driver have an accident, just stay out of the way. You probably have a unique insight into that, Will, as the guy that narrates the actual broadcast of Buggy every year. It's kind of like the sportscaster figure for this whole thing is like, you know, Every time, at least in my experience, I've been either been watching the live stream or been present and you see a buggy crash on the screen, it's like, you know, a couple people from the team, maybe one person from EMS, and then like 40 people that have nothing to do with anything all converging on this crashed buggy. It's one of the things that's really weird broadcasting this in general. And I've said this on past episodes where like, it's a really unique event in the sense that it is a radio broadcast, it is like a TV broadcast for all intents and purposes, and it is a live emceed event. So it is very much like so many things are spinning where like, obviously I'm not gonna know what happened for a bit. Like we always wanna get that radioed in eventually, but it's sort of like you're doing crowd control. You need to kind of maintain calm both literally on the court but as well just like anytime you're doing play-by-play with an injury it sucks but like you can't just be like oh 
fuck that looked bad but like you need your own composure and like trying to maintain that story and like trying to be respectful in terms of like everybody keep clear they're going to get it checked out we'll update you as soon as we can right so it is you know weird because that's like one of like 12 items you're thinking about saying and like kind of forget that the people down there can hear you um and all of that with a buggy crash i I wanted like me and like three mechanics from the team and that was it use your power for good will right he does though if you if you listen to the streams he does he says don't just leave it alone and people do it anyway (laughs) like Right, I'm, not, I, I'm not saying you're doing anything wrong. No, I, I, it's, it's, I, I mean, keep using your power. Yeah, human yeah. nature is tough. And it's, yeah, sometimes having this voice in the sky helps and a lot of times it doesn't. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely an interesting moment like to break down mentally, just like everything, you know, to talk about during that. And it's good. We really haven't had that many incidents because it does beyond the crowd control it's uncomfortable for everybody, but it's one of those things where like there's an FCC rule, like you can't stop talking and some that it gets hard to find words sometimes. When yeah, you see for someone sure. Injured. I guess that's, that's kind of something I've never really thought about before. Cause like, we don't really have to talk. In fact, we are not allowed to talk to people about it pretty much aside from being like, don't bother us. Um, right. And you having to kind of play that middle ground of, of having something to say, even in these situations where, you know, there might be actually something critical going on. That's a really interesting perspective. Yeah. It hasn't been as bad with Buggy at least, but like in my Pogo announcing, we've had a couple pretty serious injuries and it's weird when it's a live event and you're job is to like and we're really veering off but anyways we're veering off more than why i talked about doing cpr on dogs in 1906 you know what it's (laughs) the people if you're if you're listening to this podcast i think you're just in for it at this point but you know it's such a weird thing with like managing the crowd's expectations and stuff like that because it's like clearly everybody can see this person is really hurt Mm -hmm. and you don't want to be corny you know but you need a kind of find a way to comfort everybody and be like the EMTs are going to do their job clap for them. We'll get you some more information after that. And then like try and get the energy to recover because sometimes it's really hard to keep watching a sporting event after someone gets hurt and it can kind of kill, not that it's like, you know, theater or whatever, but in some ways it is. And like, yeah, when a competition's really good, you're in it and you're excited. And then when that like doubt, enters the spectator's mind of like oh shit i could see someone do whatever it just makes it really hard to um kind of enjoy after that like i know even further off like there was a wrestling match i was watching this year like pro wrestling the guy very clearly had a concussion and like for some reason they just let it keep going and it was like impossible to enjoy because it's just like this guy needs to not be moving around right now and like hearing the announcers trying to just gloss over it was like so i've never had to do that at least but it is kind of there is sort of a a bit of like a almost like theater like a a kind of the show must go on energy to stuff like this like i mean even in you know reading the reports from the serious incidents uh and buggy you know people with pretty severe injuries uh all okay now obviously but the patient's extricated, the patient's treated, put on the backboard, put on the ambulance, the ambulance takes them to the hospital, and then 
roles start again. Right, you know? right. And it's sort it, of like, is... how do you slowly get the audience to regain their energy and like kind of lose that sense of dread and, mm-hmm. you know, balance the, the delicate nature of it, but at the same time, not overly dwelling and fear mongering. And um, absolutely. So an interesting part of it. So thank you. That's an interesting question for me. Cool. I realized we, we veered a lot of places, but this has been cool. And honestly, just fun to learn about this stuff for me. So if nothing else, I'm enjoying this. Um, not sure if y'all have other buggy related stories or things you do want to share. I know we've covered a fair bit of ground here. I think Laura has a story about a butt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not allowed to tell it, but you know, no, you're allowed. Yeah, I'm not saying you're not allowed to tell. Yeah. I'm just saying, we, obviously, we have to de-identify anything we talk about. <laughs> I remember the name of the person five years later. Anyway, so it was one of the pushers. Uh, I, I vaguely remember this. We were at the corner of a Fru and Tech, so we're at the top of the hill, and one of the the pushers stumbled, fell, something like that, got a few abrasions all over his, you know, all over his body. And I was like, do you need treatment? And he was like, no, not really. Um, and I was like, great. And he was like, yeah, do you want to like see like the, he was like, yeah, I got like abrasions on my butt. Like, do you want to see it? And I was like, no, like, I trust you. You're fine. And then my, uh, my crewmate comes over and he's like, Hey, like what's going on? Let's see what, like, you know, let's see issue. And he just goes, okay. And he just pulls down his pants and he's like, check this out. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I could have gone this whole day without seeing his butt and you ruined it. It's weird because I feel like, so I feel like if you do see him in UMS for a couple of years, there's a couple stories that everyone has because they just keep happening. Like there's always like, you know, argue majors that got their fingers while no one else cares. There's a million ankle calls. There's usually a couple funny, you know, drunk stories. You used to have one about one of the cops who was a bodybuilder, uh, who was hilarious if, if you worked there while he's here. But I also feel like everyone has a story from seeing UMS of someone showing you their butt when you really didn't want or need to see it. Like I had one of the, it was a call in like Morwood Gardens. And like, you know, by the time I finally made it through the maze of hallways and found this dude's room, I'm like, hey, what's going on? He's like, I have an infection on my butt. What? And just like <laughs> dropped his pants to his ankles. And I was like, I don't. Mm. really want or need to see that i'm like do you want to go to the hospital he's like yeah that's sure i'm like do you want an ambulance he's like not really i'm like okay get in the car like i'll drive you to shady side i I do i do real quick have to ask laura were the abrasions bad no no i did not need to see them (laughs) i mean not that it's justified he did not need treatment it's very much one of those things where like if we need you to be naked, you can rest assured that you will be naked. If we if we really need to see what's going on, we'll we'll get there. We'll either we ask you to, to, sh- to show us or we will cut we through your clothes and, and take a look. Um, but you know, until we ask, it's okay to just you know talk to us about your problems. Um, there are there are kind of you're right, Gabe, that there are those kind of like default stories that are every supervisor that's worked with Carnegie Mellon for a certain amount of time is gonna have a story about. Uh, someone showing them something they don't need to see. They're going to have a story about like having a scene where someone pooped all over the place. Uh, they're going to have a story about our freshman best- that just discovered alcohol and they call on themselves to be like, what's going on? They'd be like, the room is spinning and I'm nauseous. And I'd be like, yeah, you're drunk. That's, but that's, congrats. The- you achieved the goal. 
<laughs> I think that's the one of the beauty pieces of Carnegie Mellon EMS that people don't really think about is like Carnegie Mellon EMS. Yeah, there's like very, very every now and again, there's like these bright lights issues where it's life and death, and we have to do something that actually saves someone's life or mm-hmm. vehicle accidents and these severe injuries. But a huge part of what we did at CMU EMS was kind of this safety net for kids that were are, are away from home for the first time, mm. right? And it's a lot of I'm sick. I have this, this flu-like illness or this cold that I can't shake. And a real, if I was at home, I would talk to my mom about it. And the joke almost became for a while, uh, EMS stands for emergency mommy service, but that's, that's part of the job. And that's kind of, and it's not Carnegie Mellon EMS specific. I think that's all collegiate EMS agencies, at least the ones that we've talked to. And we've talked to quite a lot of them because there's a conference for it. Um, and we hang out with them a lot. And it's really this kind of like idea that these EMS agencies exist to be a safety net for these kids that are away from home for the first time and to kind of take that burden off of the larger Pittsburgh system as a whole. Because otherwise the city would have to roll an ambulance to every one of those calls and you would get, I don't know, Gabe, what's the average age of a city paramedic now? A a mid-50s salty father of six, they'd be like, all right. At CMU EMS, we were all like, we were new EMTs, we were really excited about everything, and, you know, we, whatever the call was, we wanted to go on it. You were like, cool, it's like a minor finger laceration, you're like, I get to go on a call. When you're working, you know, as a paramedic in, like, a busy professional system, you want nothing to do with that. (laughs) Right. But that's cool. I I never really thought about that. Much like CMUMS covering buggy, just in general, we spent a lot more time practicing and thinking about the more serious stuff than we did actually dealing with it, mm. which, which is a good thing. I definitely did see serious things at um, CMUMS. My second to last call there was a respiratory arrest. But in general, like for every really, truly, okay, legit, like it's time to save a life call, there were like 20 ankles. That's actually an interesting point that you, that I forget, was it Gabe or Blaze, but we spend more time practicing for serious injuries oh than, than on crime scene. I can't tell you how many um, drills that we, that we did that were buggy related for no. those one in a million serious injuries. We also had, uh, we, the other thing I should probably bring up is we would have buggy training for like our, our new members, probably about once or twice a year. And it was mainly about just explaining buggy to them. So like what they are, um, how people are inside them, how they're usually secured. Um, when I was there, we got, I think we got CIA to show up with a buggy a couple of times and we'd, you know, put one of the drivers in there and, you know, sh- show how she was secured and how she came out. And, you know, we, you know, show pictures and be like, here's a buggy in the chute. What do you notice? Someone would be like, well, it's pointing the wrong way. It's like, good observation. Um, and, you know, we, we talk a little bit like about our protocols and like how everything usually goes. There is this idea in EMS and medicine in general of skills that are high fidelity, low frequency, which are these situations that happen very rarely, but when they do happen, you have to really be on top of them. And for Gabe and I uh, that have done this job uh, kind of in a, in a larger urban or rural or city setting, those high fidelity, low frequency calls actually become fairly high frequency. And, you know, you start to see, 
you know, you get really good at dealing with shootings because you do one every weekend, you know, and that's, but that's not something that happens at Carnegie Mellon, right? But you get really good at that stuff because, because it actually- Yeah, I did do a lot of shootings when I worked for the city. Exactly, right? It is, it is no longer a high fidelity, low frequency, it's high fidelity, high frequency. But the problem there in a setting like Carnegie Mellon EMS is that those skills are actually high fidelity, low frequency. Very rarely does someone actually get hurt that, that severely Mm -hmm. at CMU. But when it does, the people that work with CMU EMS have to be as professional as a city paramedic in those moments, right? Mm. They are expected to have the skills to deal with those problems when they happen. So instead of being able to train on it because it happens all the time, we kind of have this obligation to simulate it a lot. Yeah. and practice so, like, it in simulations constantly so like we had to train we had to do drills for like cardiac arrest is a great example we drilled that all the time there is a cardiac arrest on cmu's campus maybe about once every two to three years i have never um to this day been in an organization that trained uh more consistently uh frequently or took constant training more seriously than cmu ems um, because we had to, because in all of my um, paid EMS jobs, like you were going out on those calls for those really sick people all the time. At CMU EMS, like your first cardiac arrest is probably going to be your first cardiac arrest. And if you haven't practiced it, practiced it on the dummy 30 times, you know, you're not going to know what to do. So I've always really uh, respected CMU even afterwards because of uh, how much uh, training we did for like everything. That's interesting. I mean, one way I, I normally like to end these is sort of like asking people like how buggy impacted their life or whatever. And I feel like that's a little less relevant for y'all. I mean, if you have that, that that's good. But I think we're kind of getting into like lessons, you know, that extrapolate from EMS that even be interested, Laura, like you're not professionally in it, but I assume something with that in that world, uh, you know, probably leaves a, a, a lasting impact on just like how you approach life and such. That world being buggy or EMS? Uh, EMS. I assume, oh, I mean, maybe yeah. buggy did if you want to, that's fine. But I think for this one, I think the EMS thing makes a lot more sense because Kind of like you said, it's, you know, tangential to buggy and very important. I think we've covered a lot of cool stuff, but buggy didn't change your life. I wouldn't be surprised, you know? Yeah, no offense. I loved, you know, the race days. I thought it was a whole lot of fun, but I don't think buggy really changed my life. Um, EMS certainly did. I'd say the, the number one way it changed my life, I think, is that when something really stressful happens, when something really chaotic happens that like needs a lot of focus and a cool head and my attention, um, I'm there for it. You know, I don't really freak out among those like really, you know, people who know me will say that when mildly stressful things happen, I freak out, but when really stressful things happen, like I'm cool as a cucumber. And I remember I was on the phone with you and you were like, Oh, gotta go guy. I just got hit by a car. And I was like, yeah, I was walking over 11 at 11 and some guy was jaywalking in New York city, got hit by a car. And I was like, I'll call you back later. And I, and I like held C-spine and then I did traffic control for them. Oh, quite a life, the EMS. So for me, um, Buggy, Buggy definitely did impact my life. I made a lot of good friends uh, through Buggy. And, um, you know, I learned, I learned some fun skills in Buggy I'll never use again, like, uh, you know, how to lay up carbon fiber. 
but uh, for the most part, it was just like a really good group of people. Um, it was a lot of fun and it was interesting because it's the only kind of like race sport or race thing like that I've ever been involved in where it's like you are working towards like one goal, one time, once. Um, as far as EMS goes, I mean, EMS is, I, I came to Carnegie Mellon intending to study like material science and then go to like, I don't know, be a researcher or something. And I, on a whim, decided to go take the EMT class and like, it's become like my life basically. Like EMS is my career. Um, I fly around in helicopters now. Um, there's a picture on overheard at Carnegie Mellon a few years ago of Carnival taken from a helicopter, which was mine. And yeah, I just like EMS is stuck with me and it probably will stuck with me. I'll probably do this uh, till I, you know, retire and kind of can't imagine what I'd do if I wasn't doing that because it's just the perfect career for me. You have to use a lot of interesting skills in really, you know, legit situations, uh, but you also get paid to sleep, which is pretty nice. Doing EMS. At CMU is what I can speak to, but also sort of on a a larger scale, doing EMS um, is kind of this thing that teaches you these skills that you wouldn't otherwise be able to learn. Like Laura is saying, this kind of like being cool headed in a stressful situation is not as much as people think it is just an aspect of your personality. That is a learnable skill like anything else but people don't get to practice it unless they do jobs like this. Right. So that kind of coming out of this, you know, this four years in college under the hypothetical situation that you don't end up doing this as a job, um, that skill sticks with you for, for the rest of your life. Uh, for Gabe and I both, this is, we started at Carnegie Mellon um, with these grand plans to do stuff, right. You were going to be a math sci, and I was a physics but we both ended up finishing our degrees in emergency medicine at Pitt and becoming professional paramedics um, and doing this, uh, you know, it, sort of as a, as a career. I'm off in med school now, but that was something I had never considered until I started messing around with Carnegie Mellon EMS. Um, and I think that that's kind of, that was something I want to say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Gabe, that sort of of, of entering Carnegie Mellon EMS and then leaving it with a career in EMS was kind of a rarity before us. It didn't happen so much. Yeah. And people do that a lot more now. And I, I'm not claiming to like have, have started a trend or anything, but I just think that like, as that, as people realize that that was an option that was available and that this thing that you actually really, really enjoyed is something that you can do as a job. There's a lot more members of Carnegie Mellon EMS now that are also working at other EMS agencies in and around Allegheny County. Uh, then, then that was never the case before. Yeah. Um, it was always kind of like this isolated little bubble where we did it for four years and moved on. And now we've got kids, um, at least from what I can tell, we've got kids working in Eastern area. We've got kids working at Monroeville. We've got kids kind of scattered to the winds across Allegheny County also doing this as kind of not a full-time job, but as a, as a job outside of just volunteering mm. on campus um, that we really didn't have all that much um, at least when I started and certainly not when, when Gabe and Laura started a year later. And that, that has kind of changed a little bit. And I think that's a good thing in the yeah. long run for these people to be able to, to discover this kind of auxiliary passion um, through EMS that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. CMU EMS was a really, really great place to start in EMS. I'm still really glad that that's the first place I ever did it because of the combination of how seriously they took training also in a way how like, 
there, there's no other EMS job where someone's going to sit down with you like on your first day and spend an hour teaching you how to talk on the radio, mm. you know, whereas we 100% did that for all our new people. Like we went through every aspect of like something as simple as just how to talk to each other on the radio. And we did that for everything. And the other, the other nice thing that I respect about uh, CMUMS is they, at least by the time we left, they were really constantly thinking about really good ways to improve. They take uh, quality assurance super seriously and quality improvement super seriously. And EMS, um, many EMS agencies, um, just like a lot of other industries, um, and especially the fire service, uh, really suffers from this is how we've always done it syndrome. Like there's a saying about uh, the, uh, the fire service in America that says uh, fire departments, 100 years of tradition unimpeded by progress, um, <laughs> which is somewhat true. But like there's definitely places where like you go to work and they're just like, you know what, this is how we this is how we do it here. This is how we've always done it. This is what I learned in paramedic school in 1978 when we were carrying tributylene. And this is how we're going to do it, you know. Uh, forever. And CMUMS was constantly, I mean, I have never been to a place where your charts got reviewed more thoroughly, where people were as anal about following the protocols to the freaking letter, calling uh, medical command and talking to physicians for everything you were supposed to call and talk to physicians about and constantly be like, what are we doing? How can we do it better? How can we make sure that everything is being done right? And I think a lot of that was because when you finally do go on that, uh, you know, bad call at, at CMU, like you better know your stuff. Arguably, also, it's an EMS full of people who are going to Carnegie Mellon. Not a coincidence. It's, I think it's worth, and this is going to, I don't want this to sound self-important or anything, but Gabe keeps saying, they did this, they did this, they did this. Okay, um, we did and, this. And sort of downplaying the fact that Gabe is one of the people that was hugely responsible for that attitude of constant training and quality insurance and quality improvement. And it, it is, it's, it's great to sit here and say Carnegie Mellon EMS is great, but I, I, I do think it's important to, to give each of you credit to say, Carnegie Mellon EMS is great in part because each of us spent a significant amount of effort to make it that way. You know, Gabe, you did so much quality insurance and so many training. Laura was the executive director for a year. You had a bunch of other positions. Um, like, I don't think it's incorrect to say that a huge part of the reason that it was this way is because of the work that we did put in and a bunch of other people as well. But I'll definitely point out that uh, a lot of that was learned from the people that came before us. Like mm. when I joined CMUMS, we had a really good group of leaders that yeah, took it just as seriously. And when we I did, left them, right. um, it was kind of the same thing. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think, you know, somewhat to what Laura said too, I, there is some element of a CMU thing like that. And, you know, to somewhat bring it to buggy, I think very much a parallel, right? Where like oh, yeah. within that culture, it's always about, obviously certain teams get complacent and like dynasties shift and stuff like that but like that level of dedication it's kind of interesting to see it paralleled you know in the ems organization where right there is a very intense tradition maybe not of like following the rules but this tradition of like innovation of dedication to excellence of like throwing away your carnival um you know <laughs> passing this stuff down uh that 
you know, to me, I think it's kind of crazy that we're all multiple years out of school. We've spent 90 minutes here on a podcast, you know, talking about a club we did on like an auxiliary club podcast, you know, I think just kind of speaks volumes and sort of a meta sense of the the culture around that and, and the type of people and the experiences and everything. That's a really good point. I never thought of it that way, but there's definitely a, a parallel between, um, you know, uh, practicing at 10 PM for, you know, a polypharmacy overdose seizing that then goes into cardiac arrest and also, and then once you're done with that, going and obsessively writing standard operating procedures and, you know, being in the basement on a Saturday morning, trying to shave like every, you know, half ounce out of your buggy and get your carbon fiber to lay up exactly perfect. And yeah. Right. I mean, obviously the buggy is not necessarily going to save as many lives, but I, I think it comes from a similar root place or whatever where yeah. like you find that passion and that thing you can just go into and uh for better or for worse the CMU way is to really go all in on it oh yeah um a lot of a lot of all-nighters pulled rewriting policies and procedures for Carnegie mm-hmm. Mellon on on the parts of all three of us um and a lot more folks that that obviously if we had them all on this podcast it would devolve into complete chaos but I just, I haven't thought about this in years, but I always remembered my advice to new members and new EMTs was to read the state protocols on the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) And if you just read one protocol every time, every time you're on the toilet, in a week, you know them all. Well, cool. I think we've covered most everything I want. I don't know if there's anything else we missed anyone would like to add. This has been really interesting. I had no idea necessarily where this would go, but I learned a lot and I like these when I get to learn. That is super interesting. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks. Yeah. It's been great. And thank you for listening. I hope you learned as much and had as much fun as I did with this episode. Always appreciated. And uh, thank you for tuning in this season. You know, I imagine we will do this again in some form or fashion in the future. Uh, But for now, uh, chime in at cmubuggy.org slash chat and uh, let us know on the Discord what you thought about this episode, anything this season, any future ideas, any feedback, always appreciated. Um, Big thanks, as always, to Buggy Alumni Association for producing this, specifically Rachel Schmidt, uh, who really did most all of the work to make this season come forward. An extreme amount of thanks to her. Uh, additionally, as mentioned in the episode, uh, Rachel had the uh, capstone research about uh, some of the crash tests and danger factors within Buggy. That link is in the episode description as well if you want to go ahead and check that out. And uh, make sure to just thank her for the great job all season long. Uh, it's been a pleasure bringing these stories to you, and uh, hopefully we'll do it again sometime soon. My name is Will Weiner, and thank you for joining me for Shoot the Shit.